the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 40 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, and it's going to be difficult for me to get through the show today. I know we're all still trying to process uh, the events in Texas, and I know um, I sit here, I've, I've had a discussion at least with one of my daughters about it. I have strong opinions about the circumstances and what could or could not be done to prevent situations like this in the future and I'm not going to share those on the air because it's not my intention to start uh, a war of words or anything else like that. I just want to say that my heart goes out to the families and the friends and the community um, in Texas and I just Pray that they will be able to find some peace at some point in dealing with this amazing tragedy that has occurred. I'm going to have as normal a show as possible today following my usual format of questions and comments on situations from around the state of California. I will open up the show for anyone who would like to call in and ask an estate planning question of me live on the air, which I will answer on the air. If you'd like to call in, the number is 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. I do ask that if you do call in, please only call in about a a question concerning estate planning. I will not entertain any questions on the air about the events in Texas earlier this week. So let me start first with um, a quick question out of San Jose, which of course is my town where I practice here in San Jose, Santa Clara County. Person said, I need a conservatorship for my mother right away. How long is the process? 
and how much does it cost to set one up? It would be a conservatorship for her estate and for her person. Well, I don't actually do conservatorship in my practice, but I do work with the probate court on a fairly regular basis, handling probate matters um, where there are actual um, there are actual hearing dates that are set up for things like conservatorship. I believe it's possible to get a temporary conservatorship put in place almost immediately by filing papers with the court. I believe those may be filed um, and, and different courts may be different. I believe those may be actually filed in person because a temporary conservatorship, you can't wait for three or four weeks for it to be processed if it's filed electronically. You need some immediate relief and then a hearing date to confirm the temporary conservatorship as a permanent conservatorship. As far as the cost to set one up, the last information I had for Santa Clara County, where I practice, is somewhere between twelve and thirteen thousand dollars between attorneys' fees, filing fees, court investigators' fees. There's actually an investigator that goes out and interviews the person, uh, if possible, and maybe also interviews people around the person um, to determine whether or not the person uh, seeking. Uh, to be conserved by somebody is actually someone who would be a proper person for a conservatorship to be, uh, rather a conservator to be appointed. I'm sure that the cost of that has actually gone up from the last information I had, which was approximately two years ago. So I'm sure it's more like fourteen or $15,000 and that is for a conservatorship that is uncontested, meaning that there is nobody that is fighting the uh, the proposed conservator being appointed as the conservator. In some cases, you might have multiple members of a family who don't agree on who should be the conservator for mom or dad or for Uncle Joe or Aunt Betty. And they may end up fighting in court. And if that's the case, the conservatorship is going to cost a lot more because there are now many people involved, each often with their own attorney, and they're fighting over who would be the best fit. Ultimately, the court decides who to appoint as a conservator. Um, even if someone had nominated a conservator in their will, assuming the person had a will, that doesn't mean that, um, or nominated a conservator in a financial power of attorney or in an advanced health care directive or both, that doesn't mean the person that is nominated is the one that will be appointed by the court. Ultimately, the court will appoint whoever the court believes is the best candidate to be the conservator for the person who is um, said to be conserved, that person's called the conservatee. Now, a lot of this can be avoided completely. In this case here, 
Um, it could have been avoided completely if the mother already had an estate plan in place, if she had named this child as her uh, her agent under a power of attorney, her agent under an advanced health care directive, the successor trustee of her trust. Then it would just be a matter of establishing that mom is now incapable of handling things that is typically established by getting uh, statements from from any doctor or doctors that are treating a person. Uh, Basically, the doctor asserting this patient of mine is no longer able to handle their financial affairs or handle their medical and health care decisions. And therefore, the people that were named to take over and make those decisions now step in and they now take over and now they're in charge of making those medical health care decisions, financial decisions, handling the assets that somebody has owned by a trust, handling other assets that are actually uh, in uh, in uh, someone's individual name, uh, doing things like filing tax returns, dealing with government agencies like Medicare, uh, the Medi-Cal program, the DMV, the IRS, the Franchise Tax Board, all of those different things come together when you have a comprehensive, well-drafted estate plan. So um, we're coming up shortly here on the first break of our show today. I would ask that during this commercial break, everyone maybe pause for a couple of minutes for a moment of silence and uh, think about the families that have suffered so much in Texas. I'll be coming back after the break. This is attorney Bob Bergman, host of Plan Your Estate Radio, and we'll continue the show after this commercial break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back to the show today. I'm going to continue with more questions and comments from around California, uh, which is the usual format I have for my show here on Friday afternoons. I'm going to go now with a, a situation out of Sacramento, California, where the person asks, as a legal heir, how do I compel notice of the terms of a trust and how do I find out who is the, well, in this case, person says the administrator or executor. What they mean is who is the successor trustee of the trust? Person says, I know there was a revocable trust created for a piece of property. Since the owner has died, I'm assuming it's now irrevocable. I've never received any notice. What would happen if I never do? Well, if there's real estate that was owned by a revocable trust, then that means the real estate has a title on it that's recorded. If the owner has died, whoever takes over as the successor trustee at some point needs to be put on the title of that real estate as the new trustee of the trust. There's no information here about how long ago the owner 
passed away. If it was very shortly ago, it may be that administration of the trust has not really been commenced yet. Uh, Part of the obligation of the trustee is to send a notice out to all of the beneficiaries of the trust, uh, along with a copy of the terms of the trust. And uh, there are others who may actually be required to be given a copy of the trust as well, even if they're not beneficiaries. For example, someone who is a direct legal heir, but may have been left out or even disinherited. Um, they're likely to be required to be given a copy of the terms of the trust as well um, because they might very well have uh, have a complaint and wish to contest the trust in some way, uh, contest that it was, um, whether it was a proper trust or not, and, uh, and, and that's kind of generally the case right there. But as to how do you find out the administrator, executor, in this case the successor trustee, um, the, the real estate records, checking there <clears throat> to see if there's been a change of trustee recorded that will list who that, who that person is and likely list their address. Um, but um, if this person never got notice, I'd be tremendously concerned about that because that would likely mean that whoever took over intentionally did not let anybody know and may have actually taken over and effectively embezzled the real estate, taken it over, put it in their name, transferred it to themselves, and then maybe sold it and pocketed the proceeds or absconded with the property. Um, and, And that does happen now and then. It's completely in violation of the terms of the trust, which likely says it's going to be distributed to one or more people. And uh, and in some cases, it could be considered a crime. Uh, someone who's put in charge of assets that are for the benefit of somebody else, and then they take those assets to themselves and use it for themselves. That's called conversion. It typically can be Um, taken to court civilly for civil penalties and damages. And in some cases, it can even be prosecuted as a crime, the crime of embezzlement, Um, which if someone's in charge of property that really belongs to somebody else and they sell that property or transfer it to themselves or keep it, that's embezzlement. That can actually be a crime as well. So in a situation like this, um, the this person, I think they need to start talking with everybody around the person who died. Talk with other family members, if there's other family members. Uh, if there are multiple family members, it's likely that one or more of them um, are the successor trustees of the trust. If a professional trustee was selected, then this person is likely to be uh, to be notified at some point. So they can maybe sit tight for a while and see what happens. Okay, here's a question out of San Diego, California. I don't know that it's specifically an estate planning question, but it shows up in the feed for estate planning questions. And uh, let me kind of address this. Um, I, I, I'd like to try and inject... Uh, 
a little bit of levity into my show today because it's a very heavy day and sometimes we need to smile or at least laugh a little bit. This person said, Hello, my father is age 76. He's a citizen of the United States and he wants to marry women abroad. Considering his age, are there any problems we will face because of his age? Well, as someone who's getting up there in years myself, I would say your father's biggest problem is likely finding somebody interested in marrying him if he's 76 years of age, uh, especially someone from abroad. And if we're talking about uh, marrying someone from abroad, that suggests to me he's looking at marrying someone who's significantly younger than he is. And uh, if he has plenty of money and uh, as and is in at least decent health, he probably can find a wife abroad, um, someone willing to marry him, especially if um, that person's going to get uh, a chunk of money um, when this person's father passes away. But I, I'm not really sure if they're asking whether or not at age 76 is the father competent to marry. Does he have the mental capacity to actually enter into a marriage? That could very well be the case, or it could be that he does not have the capacity to enter into a marriage because of um, because of the ravages of age. Um, I have uh, clients that are that age that are very sharp and uh, have all of their faculties, and I have clients of this age that uh, it's very clear to me they're starting to lose their faculties and they're probably not going to be mentally competent within the next two to four years. So it's kind of uh, kind of hard to say, kind of hard to answer whether or not there's going to be any difficulties for this person's father trying to seek um, a spouse from overseas. Now, I know people that do have spouses that came from overseas. I had a friend of mine that actually uh, met a woman, a Russian woman, and uh, ended up marrying, and they had a child, a lovely child. They're not married anymore, but they do still share a very lovely daughter who's very talented. So some good came out of that, and I'm, I'm happy for them both that they have this lovely, talented daughter. Okay, we're coming up on the mid-show break. When we come back, there will be more Plan Your Estate Radio. This is your host, estate planning attorney, Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney, Bob Bergman, on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to continue with more questions and comments from around the state of California in this third segment of our show together today. <clears throat> Out of Templeton, California. Question, how is a subtrust or children's trust of a revocable living trust established? Is it up to the successor trustee to create the subtrust? Is it a whole different document from the original revocable living trust. 
Okay. Excellent question. Many trusts, including many of the trusts that I draft, living trusts that I draft, have provision for assets to be left in trust for a child or a grandchild or another beneficiary. In a case like that, all of the provisions for that subtrust or children's trust, which is created typically at the death of the original trustor, the creator of the original trust, all of the terms and provisions for that trust will be found in the original revocable living trust. There's not a new document prepared. Instead, um, typically, there will be a tax identification number applied for from the IRS for that new subtrust or that children's trust because those are typically going to be irrevocable trusts, which means they need a tax ID number. You can't use the Social Security number of the original owner, and you can't use the Social Security number of the beneficiary because a trust like that is typically set up for the benefit of the beneficiary, avoiding direct ownership of the property and the trust by the beneficiary. So uh, sometimes a trust is set up that is separate from the living trust, and it becomes instead where the living trust points assets to be distributed. For example, I'm in the process of working with a family where I'm going to be establishing a supplemental needs trust for a child, and the revocable living trust uh, for the couple is going to direct that that child's share be distributed at the death of both of them to the supplemental needs trust set up for their special needs child. Um, Other assets in that trust uh, are either going to be distributed outright to other children or perhaps in lifetime trusts, asset-protected trusts, for the other children. I'm not sure exactly which way the family's going to go in reference to other children. We haven't had the meeting yet to go that over that. But we do know that we're creating a separate, standalone, supplemental needs trust for the special needs child so that that now becomes where assets get distributed. There are some practitioners that will create trusts like that for each child of, uh, of someone, uh, rather than having the provisions in the main trust. Um, that way you can actually have completely different terms and conditions of those trusts uh, and have it set up in such a way that other children or other beneficiaries don't get to see all the specific terms and conditions of the trust. Um, I have considered whether or not to go to that kind of model for trust. It creates more paperwork, but it can also have the advantage in some situations of keeping the ultimate distribution plans of someone private from other members of the family and other beneficiaries of a trust so that everyone doesn't get to see everything and what everyone else is getting and and what the terms and conditions are. 
So that is something um, I have considered doing. I did work for a firm years ago where that was the standard approach. It is more paperwork intensive. It's more expensive because it's more paperwork intensive. But in some cases, it might be an appropriate point. But it is the successor trustee of the trust that has the requirement to implement any trusts being set up. And those new trusts might have new trustees. So the successor trustee needs to work with the new trustee of that subtrust in order to then transfer assets over from the original trust into the subtrust so that they can then be handled for the benefit of the beneficiary of that subtrust. And I know I just went through a pretty lengthy explanation and kept talking about trusts and subtrusts and children's trusts and beneficiary that and trust or that. I know it can sound pretty confusing. That is why it makes sense in a situation involving estate planning to use someone well-versed and expert in estate planning. That's why I suggest to people that if they want to do things right or have it done right, they should come and sit down and talk with somebody like me. I've been doing this over 40 years. I've been doing estate planning over 40 years. And um, the there are things about estate planning that I used to do that I've probably forgotten more about estate planning than most attorneys know about estate planning today. Uh, that doesn't mean that I skip things or or don't get things done. It's just that there are things that were done in the past that we don't do anymore. And so I don't worry about remembering things that we don't do anymore. I would rather keep my mind open and keep my bandwidth, if you will, available to deal with estate planning as it's practiced here in 2022. Here's someone out of Palmdale. And they said, uh, I'm at the end of a probate, and now the court is asking for the final accounting of the estate. Which form do I need for the final accounting for an estate? Well, unfortunately, in probate, there is no form you can get. Instead, the form, if you will, is the form of accounting, how you have to present accounting information in written form to the court so they can review it and then approve the accounting and approve the final distribution. Um, This is where um, many probate attorneys will actually do uh, the formal accounting. Um, uh, If a formal accounting is needed in a probate I'm handling, I refer someone to an accountant to put together the final accounting that can then be incorporated into the final petition for the distribution of assets from the probate and uh, closing out the estate. Um, But there isn't just a form you can pick up at, uh, well, you used to be able to pick up many forms at stationery stores like McWhorter's. Anyone remember McWhorter's? But you can't really do that anymore. And there's also no, uh, there's also no fill-in-the-blank form that's available to do an accounting. It has to be created, and then transferred to or put, uh, put in uh, a final 
petition that is actually drawn up by hand. Uh, I don't mean handwritten, but but actually typed up by hand. It's not a fill-in-the-blank form. Um, and that provides the kind of information that the court needs to actually grant the final distribution of an estate and sign an order saying who's going to get what and when. And, uh, and, and that would include, in many cases, an accounting have to be filed with the court. Now, beneficiaries, if all the beneficiaries of an estate waive the need for an accounting, then there's a lot less information that needs to be provided to the court. And a detailed accounting is not really necessary. So that's, um, that is something to consider right there. If you have beneficiaries that are all getting along with each other and they trust whoever was handling the estate, then they can often get away without having to go to the time and expense and effort of putting together a final accounting uh, because in some cases it could be pretty extensive and it could actually um, um, cost quite a bit to have it put together. So that's something where where I kind of, uh, I encourage families to consider not doing that if, if it's not really necessary. Okay, let's look at um, another one here. I think... Um, have roughly a minute and a half left in this segment of our show today. Out of Crockett, California, can I remove my name from the title of the house I share with my wife? The title of the house my wife and I share is in both our names. The mortgage is in her name only. She purchased a year ago. I would like to remove my name from the title of the house so that it can't be included in my assets should I die and my son defaults on a student loan I co-signed before we were married? Is this possible? Well, sure it's possible. Uh, if, it, if it's done well in advance of any knowledge that there's any kind of default or creditor coming after you, then uh, yes, you could take your name off the title, transfer your interest so that your wife owns the whole thing. There's some drawbacks to that. There can see some tax implications involved there if um, and if that was done I would suggest that this is a prime situation where where the husband and wife should consider doing an estate plan involving a trust so that there's some way to handle that property should the wife pass away and be the only one owning the property we're coming up on the third break of our show today when we come back I'll finish off the show with a few more questions and comments. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. So I'm going to finish up the show with a few more questions and comments from around the state. We'll start with uh, one out of Visalia, California. Question is, what's the best way to transfer my parents' house into my name? So my parents are getting older now and want to put the house in my name so I can make improvements to the property while they still live in the house. Also, this is pre-planning for when they pass on. Let me just say this about that. 
if the parents transfer the title to the house to the uh, in their house to their child while they're still living in the house unless the child is also living in the house and it's the child's residence as well and that's not clear that transfer to the child will trigger 100% reassessment of the real property taxes on this house in Visalia. That's because of Proposition 19, and I'm not going to cover Proposition 19 today in any detail, but suffice it to say that unless the child is living in the house as the child's personal residence, doing a transfer like this will trigger a reassessment of the property taxes. The second issue is transferring the property to the child now instead of after the parents are deceased means that the child receives the same income tax value, what's called the cost basis, that the parents have in the property. That means that the parents have owned the property for a long time and then the parents... Um, pass away, uh, or if this child now owns the property and decides to sell it after the parents pass away, the child is going to end up paying income tax on the difference between what the parents owned it for, what they bought it for, and the net amount from the sale uh, later on down the line. Depending on how much it's gone up in value, there could be tax on potentially several hundred thousand dollars worth of taxable gain, which could be completely, completely avoided if the parents continue to own the property, maybe in trust, um, the child loaned money to the parents to fix up the property. And then when, when the child inherits the property, the child would inherit it, number one, at the market value for income tax purposes, and if the child moved into the house or was already living there uh, as a personal residence, would likely be able to not have any property taxes be reassessed. Because as long as the value of the property when the surviving parent dies under the current Prop 19 law, as long as it's less than the assessed value on the date of death of the last parent plus $1 million, there will be no reassessment of the property taxes. That could make that very advantageous, very beneficial for the child to be able to take over and move into that house as, as their own residence and, um, and not have the property taxes go up. But always have the option later on to sell the property and not have a big income tax gain as a result of selling. Um, that's another consideration right there. So... Uh, it's not something I would recommend. If this family came to me, I would recommend alternative ways to get to what it is they're trying to accomplish uh, using estate planning in a proper way to take care of that for the family. Okay, out of San Jose. Seems to be activity in San Jose now. I recently found out I was beneficiary of my great-grandmother's trust who passed in 2019. My cousin, who was left as the trustee, hasn't dispersed any of the funds to the beneficiary, but has sold all of the trust property, estimated around $2 million, 
and purchased property for himself. I sent a letter asking about distributions and accountings to his new address, and he didn't respond. After doing further research, I see he moved from the address six days after receiving the letter demanding disbursement and accounting. Every time a beneficiary sends a letter to his new address, he moves immediately. There's nothing in the trust that waives his right to account to beneficiaries. I would say it's also part of California law. What should I do in this situation? I think what you need to probably do is file a petition in the probate court against your cousin demanding an accounting and maybe even being able to put some kind of what's called a Liz Pendens or a notice of pending action against any house the cousin has purchased because the likelihood is the cousin purchased purchased it with money from great-grandmother's trust and has probably embezzled from the family as a result. Um, This person needs to be removed as the trustee. The only one who can do that if they won't voluntarily step down is a court. So this is probably going to take court action in order to sort all this out for the family so they can receive the inheritance to which they're entitled. Well, we're coming up on the end of our show today. Um, I I apologize for kind of the down nature of the show today. Uh, I know that I was very deeply affected by the events in Texas, as I'm sure all of you were as well. But uh, just to let you know, next week, I will probably have one of my prior shows playing because my children are graduating uh, next Friday afternoon at the same time my show would ordinarily be broadcast. So I'll get back to you the week after that. This is attorney Bob Bergman. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 